For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, so we are getting to the end of Acts. We're getting to the end of Paul's third journey. We left off last week. He was at Miletus talking to the elders of Ephesus in this, this speech to these men full of passion, full of tears, full of deep pastoral wisdom. And at the end, we, we last see them. They're on, at, down, down by the ship crying together because Paul had said, I, I'm never going to see you guys again. And so it, Luke tells us, in, in Acts 21, verse 1, after saying farewell to the Ephesian elders, or literally, after we ripped ourselves away from them, it was so painful to leave. We said farewell to the Ephesian elders, and we sailed straight to the island of Kos. Luke's with them again, okay? This is a wee passage, so the detail skyrockets. From there, we reached Rhodes. That would have been a pretty cool sight, the Colossus of Rhodes. I hear they're actually trying to rebuild this thing at Rhodes, so... Anyway, we went to Patara after that. The small ships had to hug the coastline. They had to put into to port each night because they couldn't afford to be out at night. At Patara, though, it looks like they got on a bigger ship that could sail straight across the Mediterranean. We passed the island of Cyprus on our left and landed at the harbor of Tyre in Syria where the ship was to unload its cargo. Yeah, when, when you're traveling by ship in ancient times, you didn't just like book a ticket for a specific date and time. You'd pay to get on the boat, but you had to be hanging out for when the ship was ready to leave and you had to be there ready. And you also were sort of at the mercy of the cargo unloading, loading trade schedule. So here, they were going to have some time at Tyre. And so they get off the ship. We went ashore, we found the local believers, and we stayed with them for a full week. Apparently that's how long it was going to take for the ship to get unloaded and loaded again. This is not a group that Paul planted, but they found him there. And you know, Paul might have actually planted this church through the persecution earlier in his life that drove the Christians out of Jerusalem right up in through this area. So you could actually say he probably had a hand in planting these churches as well. But he says we stayed with them for a week. And even though it looks like, you know, they might not have known these believers, they formed a deep bond that we have in Christ. It did say these believers prophesied through the Holy Spirit that Paul should not go to Jerusalem. That can say through the Holy Spirit or on the occasion of the Holy Spirit. But um, it seems like a contradiction at first. Last chapter we read, Paul says, I am compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And now these guys are saying, don't go to Jerusalem. How do we resolve that? I think it'll become clear when we get down to Caesarea, and I'll, and I'll explain then. When we returned to the ship at the end of the week, the entire congregation, including the women and the children, left the city and came down to the shore with us. They, wanted, they did not want to see Paul go. They wanted to see him off. And there we knelt and prayed right there on the beach. What a touching scene. And we said our farewells, and then we went aboard and they returned home. The next stop after leaving Tyre was Ptolemaeus, just down from Tyre, where we greeted the brothers and sisters. We only had one day there. The next day we went on to Caesarea. You remember Caesarea, where Peter had his big breakthrough with Cornelius, the first large-scale Gentile conversions. And it says when he got to Caesarea, he stayed not with Cornelius, who Peter led to Christ, but another guy who... Paul kind of knew from back in the day. We stayed at the home of Philip the Evangelist. Do you remember him? He was one of the seven that were chosen to feed the widows there in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 6. 
Stephen was one of the seven, and Paul had Stephen killed, and Philip was one of the guys driven out of Jerusalem in that persecution that broke out. He was one of the seven who had been chosen to distribute food. I don't know if these guys had seen each other in 20 years. You know, he, Paul had killed Stephen, who was probably a really good friend of Philip and maybe many others as well. And yet here we see brothers in Christ talk, probably talking about their ministry, welcoming him into his home. You see the forgiveness possible through Jesus Christ. And also, we also find out Philip got married, settled down, raised a family. He had four daughters. It says four unmarried daughters who all had the gift of prophecy. And so he's delivering all of his girls as Christian workers. And Luke tells his audience, hey guys, they're unmarried. <laughs> they're single. I wonder if some readers here were thinking about making a pilgrimage to Caesarea. <laughs> well, several days later, a man named Agabus, who also had the gift of prophecy, arrived from Judea. So he came up from Jerusalem. We've met Agabus before as well. He's the one that went up to Antioch and prophesied about that famine. He's the one that helped them get that, that collection together to take down to Jerusalem. So Agabus is still, still getting it done 10 years after that. He came over to Paul and he took Paul's belt and he tied up his own feet and hands with it, right, okay? And he said, the Holy Spirit declares, so shall the owner of this belt be bound by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and turned over to the Gentiles. So Paul's like, all right. Can I get my belt back? <laughs> so he's prophesying. He's, he's prophesied accurately before. He's warning him, suffering lies ahead. And then Luke says, when we heard this, we and the local believers all begged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So what's the deal? Is the Holy Spirit contradicting himself? No. What the Spirit is predicting through Agabus... What the Spirit had already told Paul is that what lies ahead is suffering, imprisonment, hardships, really bad times ahead. But the Spirit had also told Paul, but you've got to go anyway. You've got to go. And so what happens here is what the Spirit said was, you're going to be bound. You're going to be captured. And then Luke says, and then when we heard the prophecy, we began begging Paul. That's probably what happened just a little bit earlier in this chapter as well. And so this is why prophecies need to be interpreted. You know, what they, the, the prophecy was right, but their interpretation of it, they're thinking, well, of course, God wouldn't want you to go there and suffer. You can't do this. And Paul's like, no, the Spirit's already told him. You've got to go and you're going to suffer. He said, why are you weeping? You're breaking my heart. It, it pained him to see his friends like this and to have to tell them, no, I've got to do this. He didn't, like, he didn't want to have this argument. I'm ready not only to be jailed at Jerusalem, but even to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus. And that's a commitment that every believer should be willing to have. We should all have the same perspective. Paul had signed his life over to Christ. And like he, we saw last week, he said, I consider my life as worth nothing to me. I just want to finish my race. And that's how I feel as well. When it was clear that we couldn't persuade him, Luke says, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. You get the sense maybe Paul got that a lot. 
But this is also why we should be careful to say, God told me that you should do this. We should be very reluctant, okay? And um, God told me to do something, that's one thing, right? Also, Paul's saying, I'm not going to listen to you guys. I'm going to move into, into this painful situation. A lot of times when we ignore advice, it's because we want to take the easy route. He's ignoring the advice and going for the harder route. Well, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. And sometimes, you know, you just got to say, well, I said my piece, and we're just going to put this in God's hands. After this, we packed our things and left for Jerusalem. Some believers from Caesarea accompanied us, and they took us to the home of Manasseh, a man originally from Cyprus and one of the early believers. This guy had been walk, he'd been a Christian for a long time. Maybe he converted at Pentecost. When we arrived, the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem welcomed us warmly. So they got a warm welcome from the first Christians they met in Jerusalem. And I want to just say a few words about Jerusalem at this time in 57 AD. Here we've got a model of, of what Jerusalem would have looked like. You can see the Temple Mount dominates the entire city. This was located on the east wall of the city, so we're facing west here as we look at this. You know, Jerusalem, Paul hasn't been there much. He was raised there under Gamaliel, the great teacher. Probably his early teens, maybe into his 20s, maybe even up to age 30 or so. But since then, he, he's only been there four times for brief visits, according to the book of Acts. In AD 37, 47, 49, and 53. And so he hasn't been there that much. And what's clear is that a lot has changed since then. For one, it's ruled by Ananias, the corrupt high priest. You can actually read about him in Josephus. He was a hoarder of money. He was corrupt. He would send his goons in to beat people, to take their tithes that were supposed to go to the priests. You had priests starving while Ananias was taking the money. Different from Annas that we read about in the Gospels earlier, an earlier high priest. And the political and racial tensions in Jerusalem are soaring at the present time. John Polhill says, Josephus described the period of the mid-50s as a time of intense Jewish nationalism and political unrest. One insurrection after another rose to challenge the Roman overlords. And Felix, the governor at the time, we're going to meet him, brutally suppressed them all. The way he suppressed these just made the Jews angry. And another Messiah, supposed Messiah, would rise up to try to lead them to victory. And then he would get ground down even further. This only increased the Jewish hatred for Rome and inflamed anti-Gentile sentiments. It was a time when pro-Jewish sentiment was at its height and friendliness with outsiders was viewed askance. It was very negatively viewed. And so you can imagine Paul walks into Jerusalem with eight Gentiles carrying this collection for the poor there. And so Paul is a Jew of Jews, right? And yet he's got these eight Gentiles. And this is a time he would have stuck out like a sore thumb. This would be like, you know, like a, a, a white guy going into a, a racist white city with eight black guys to, to introduce them to his old friends. And so he's walking into the city and people are like, what is Paul doing? There were also rumors circulating about Paul that he was, well, we'll read about these rumors here in a moment. But this was a tense time here in Jerusalem. Witherington says Felix had often killed innocent citizens 
But perhaps the most egregious example of abuse of power was how he dealt with a particular Egyptian Jew that is going to feature later in the story. This guy, this Egyptian Jew, he gathered a group of about 4,000. Luke says 4,000, Josephus says 30,000. Josephus tended to exaggerate, though. He got a group of 4,000, and he led them out into the wilderness, and he said, we're going to march up to Jerusalem, and the walls are going to come tumbling down like Joshua and Jericho, and we're going to go in, and I'm going to be the new king, and you're going to be my followers. And Felix found out about it, and they captured and killed 400 of his followers. They imprisoned another 200, but the, the Egyptian got away. They didn't get him. There was, he, he was still on the lookout for this Egyptian Jew. This had happened probably 54 AD. But there were all kinds of these events under the reign of Felix. Kanner says this, he says, Jerusalem is not what it had been in Acts 2. It was a much more tense place. Tensions are rising. And in the temple, Sicari, or assassins, are murdering aristocrats suspected of collaborating with Gentiles. Yeah, these Sicari, they're going to be mentioned later as well. These guys, it was kind of like early terrorism. They basically would go into the temple. They had these knives under their robes. And they would go up, they would target rich guys who were helping Rome. And they would go up to them and they would, boom, stab. And then slip the knife out and slip away. The guy would collapse behind them. All of a sudden people would notice and mayhem would ensue. And so rich guys were getting afraid to go to the temple because they were afraid they were going to get murdered there. So... This is the scene that Paul is walking into. He's thinking, I'm going to show up with my Gentile converts. We got all this money for the poor. Just like Peter and John had asked us to get. He said, remember the poor. I'm doing that. Peter and John aren't even there now, apparently. And he's walking in, and he's going to meet with James, the brother of the Lord. Oh, by the way, just to get a sense of how big this was, that little green square up in the top left corner of the Temple Mount, that's a, it's like a football field, okay? It's 100 yards by about 60 yards. You could fit 25 of these up here. Massive. Well, the next day, Paul went with us, so Luke's here again, to meet with James and all the elders of the Jerusalem church were present. Well, after greeting them, it's him and his eight Gentiles, Paul gave a detailed account of the things God had accomplished among the Gentiles through his ministry. And after hearing this, they praised God, praised the Lord for how he's working throughout the Gentile world. And then they said, you, but you know, dear brother, how many, literally ten thousands, how many ten thousands of Jews have also believed? You know, God's, God's doing a lot here too. And, uh, well, they, they all still follow the law of Moses very seriously. But, unfortunately, these Jewish believers in Jerusalem, they've been told that you're teaching all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn their backs on the laws of Moses. They've heard you teach them not to circumcise their children or follow other Jewish customs. What should we do? They'll certainly hear that you've come. What should they do? Boy. Here's what we want you to do, actually. We have an idea. We got these four men here who have just completed their vow. Okay, this, 
It doesn't really say what it is. It, it kind of seems like it's a Nazarite vow where you wouldn't cut your hair for a long time and then you would shave your head and you'd do an offering. Paul had something like that in 1818, didn't he? Acts 18.18, 18, he shaved his head. Is something about a vow. And so these guys, they've completed their vow, but to, to finish off a Nazarite vow, you, each guy needed like two sheep, a ram, some grain offering, and drink offering. He said, why don't you go with them to the temple? You can join with them in the purification ceremony. It's also not clear what Paul was supposed to do. Some kind of purification ceremony. There's a thing in Numbers 19 where if you touch a dead person, you had to go through the seven-day purification process. It, it looks like they may have applied that to just when you spent a long time with Gentiles, you had to get purified when you came back in and wanted to go to the temple. And they said, Paul, you can, you can pay for them to have their heads ritually shaved. Just go right down to the temple barber. <laughs> you can pay, you, you can, whatever they had to pay to finish off their vow. And then everyone will know that the rumors are false and that you yourself observe the Jewish laws. And as for the Gentile believers, they, they should just do what we already told them in a letter. To, you know, don't eat food offered to idols, don't consume blood, the meat of strangled animals, sexual morality, all the Acts 15 decree stuff. Well, so what's going on here? What do you do in Paul's situation? You're in a tense situation. He did say, you know, I'd become a Jew to the Jews to win people to Christ. He, he, he tells the Romans, you know, if, if these Jewish believers, they want to follow the dietary laws, don't, don't force them to eat pork chops. Don't judge them. It's okay. They can, they can follow some of these ceremonial laws, dietary laws. You know, he, he didn't force Jews to live like Gentiles. And he even did things. We saw him. He, he circumcised Timothy, who was a Jew. And so the question here is, you know, Paul, Paul's going to go along with this. The question is, is this a mistake or not? You know, one view says, well, this was like a morally neutral thing that Paul was doing to try to be diplomatic. Another view says Paul was wrong to do this, to, to initiate this sacrifice. And some even think that it was this experience right here that led him to write the book of Hebrews. As he saw how riddled Jerusalem had become with legalism. Well, Paul went to the temple the next day with the other men. Right here, this is the temple. They had already started the purification ritual, so he just publicly announced the date when their vows would end and sacrifices would be offered for each of them. And then Luke tells us the seven days were almost ended. Paul was about to go through with this, this final thing, this part of this ritual, and the whole plan backfires. He never gets to finish the ritual. In fact, it says some Jews from the province of Asia, probably Ephesus, they saw Paul in the temple and they roused a mob against him. And they grabbed him yelling, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who preaches against our people everywhere! And he tells everybody to disobey the Jewish laws! Very similar to what they charged Stephen with, actually. He even speaks against the temple and defiles this holy place by bringing in Gentiles. You can kind of see my red arrow is pointing to a really faint line... That's a four-foot wall. Gentiles weren't allowed through that wall. And the Jews were so insistent on this that they got the Romans, they got a special exception from Rome that if Gentiles went in to their temple, they could 
execute the death penalty without Roman approval, even on Roman citizens. It's a very rare exception that Rome granted here. And this, this wall, they've actually uncovered a couple of the signs. This is the best example, right? A sign that was mounted on this wall, and what it said in Greek was this. No foreigner is to enter within the balustrade and embankment around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his death which follows. Welcome to Jerusalem. <laughs> well, Luke explains, Paul had not brought a Gentile. And he says earlier that day, they'd seen him in the city with Trophimus, a Gentile from Ephesus, and they just assumed Paul had taken him into the temple. He was walking around with Gentiles during the day, and he's walking around with these four guys for the ritual thing, and they're assuming it's the same guys. Different. Different. Well, the whole city was rocked by these accusations and a great riot followed. So you've got to imagine the court just fills with people. <laughs> Paul was grabbed and they dragged him out of the temple and boom, the gates were closed behind him and they're getting ready to kill him, which they are technically allowed to do. Well, as they were trying to kill him, word reached the commander of the Roman regiment that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. Did you notice in the northwest corner of the temple, this structure? That's the fortress of Antonia that Herod had built right into the wall of the temple to keep an eye on things. There was a whole cohort there, 600 soldiers, multiple centurions, and the commander, Claudius Lysias. And so you've got your Roman soldiers up here. <laughs> This is why they're able to respond so quickly. They basically like they're they're on site temple cops, okay? <laughs> well, he immediately called out his soldiers and his officers and they ran down among the crowd and when the mob saw the commander and the troops coming, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander arrested him and ordered him bound with two chains. <gasps> Paul's not alone. He's got a celebrity with him. <laughs> I don't know what Two Chains did to get arrested, but. So, anyway, he asked the crowd who he was and what he had done. Lysias, he's just trying to find out what is going on here. And so the Romans arrest him, which is good. Because if the temple guards, the Jewish guards had arrested him, he would be the property of the Jews, their prisoner. But because the Romans arrested him, in order for the Jews to get at him, they'd have to extradite him from Roman control. And that was a lot harder. He's trying to find out what's going on. Some shouted one thing and some shouted another. He can't find out what the deal is here. So since he couldn't find out the truth and all the uproar and confusion, he ordered that Paul be taken up to the fortress. But as Paul reached the stairs, the mob grew so violent that soldiers had to lift him to their shoulders to protect him. So they're moving up, the mob's moving in. This is scary. And the crowd followed behind shouting, Kill him! Kill him! Kill him! Well, as Paul was about to be taken inside, he said to the commander, May I have a word with you? You know Greek? The commander asked, surprised. Aren't you that Egyptian? 
who led a rebellion some time ago, took 4,000 members of the assassins out in the desert. We got him, guys. We got the Egyptian. No. <laughs> I'm a Jew. I'm a citizen of Tarsus in Cilicia, which is an important city. I have a million people. Perhaps you've heard of it. Please, let me talk to these people. Well, the commander agreed, probably hoping he could find out what in the world are they so mad at him about. And so Paul stood on the stairs and motioned to the people to be quiet. So he's looking down on this crowd, probably. Soon a deep silence enveloped the crowd, and he addressed them in their own language, Aramaic. Brothers and esteemed fathers, Paul said, listen to me as I offer my defense. When they heard him speaking in their own language, this silence was even greater. So we get another one of Paul's speeches. He said, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, and I was brought up and educated here in Jerusalem under Gamaliel, the esteemed, famous rabbi. In fact, the Talmud says, since Rabbi Gamaliel the elder died, there's been no more reverence for the law, and purity and abstinence died out at the same time. They invented the term Rabban because this guy was, was such hot stuff. Grandson of Hillel. I mean, this only, one of only seven people ever get the title Rabban. So Paul, this was as prestigious as you could get. This was, he's going into his righteous pedigree. I was brought up here in the most rigorous religious school. Gamaliel. As his student, I was carefully trained in our Jewish laws and customs. I became very zealous to honor God. Everything I did, just like all of you today, I was, I was zealous for righteousness, just like all of you. In fact, I was so righteous, I persecuted the followers of the way, Christianity, hounding some to death, arresting both men and women, throwing them in prison. The high priest and the whole council of elders can testify that this is so. Paul was on the Sanhedrin. They knew him. He probably still had some old buddies there present. I received letters from them to our Jewish brothers in Damascus authorizing me to bring the followers of the way from there to Jerusalem in chains to be punished. And as I was on the road approaching Damascus about noon in his quest of righteousness, a very bright light from heaven suddenly shone down around me. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. And the voice replied, I'm Jesus the Nazarene. The one you persecuted. People with me, they saw the light, but they didn't understand the voice speaking to me. It's heard, you know, they, they heard something. They, just, they couldn't tell what it said. And I asked, what should I do, Lord? And the Lord told me, get up and go to Damascus. And there you'll be told everything you're to do. Well, I was blinded by the intense light and had to be led by the hand to Damascus by my companions. There's a man named Ananias who lived there. He was also a godly man deeply devoted to the law, well regarded by all the Jews of Damascus. He's appealing here to his audience again. Another righteous, godly dude. He came and stood beside me and he said, Brother Saul, regain your sight. 
And that very moment, boom, a miracle. I could see him. And then he told me, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear him speak. And so Paul says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I had the perfect pedigree. I was circumcised the eighth day. I followed the law to a T. I was trained under Gamaliel. I even persecuted the way and I thought I was so righteous. Until the day that I got to meet the righteous one. And that's when he began to realize how worthless his righteousness was. How far short it fell of what God really demanded, which was perfection. That's what God demands, perfection. Anything short of that is not good enough. And that's why he sent the righteous one to die for you. So that you can take your guilt and hand it over to him. And he can give you a clean white robe in exchange. Ananias said, you're to be his witness, telling everyone what you've seen and heard. So what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. Good question. What are you waiting for? Coming to Christ. Have your sins washed away by calling on the name of the Lord. Well, he says, after I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple and I fell into a trance. So apparently it's three years after his conversion when he goes to Damascus, out into Arabia, back to Damascus, and then makes his way down to Jerusalem. In Acts 9 it told us there was a plot from some of the Jews there to kill him. Acts 22 gives us a little more detail. He says, also, I was praying in the temple, right here where we are, Paul says, I was praying and I fell into a trance. And I got a vision of Jesus. And Jesus said to me, Hurry up, leave Jerusalem. The people here, they won't accept your testimony about me. But Lord, I argued, arguing with God. Oh, they, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. How could they not see the change that's come over me? It's a little confusing sometimes. Especially some of us that grew in religious homes and grew up in religious homes and never knew the Lord. You finally have the breakthrough of grace. And it's sort of shocking that your old friends and family, they don't, they don't see things the same way you do. And they seemed even angrier and more determined to follow the law, try to earn salvation. Paul says, I was in complete agreement when your witness Stephen was killed. I stood by. I kept the coats. They took off when they stoned him. But the Lord said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the, and are you ready for this word? Gentiles. <gasps> he said the G word. Well, the crowd listened until Paul said that word. And then they all began to shout, away with such a fellow, he isn't fit to live. And they yelled and they took off their coats and they tossed handfuls of dust into the air. <laughs> ah! So the commander grabs Paul, brings him inside. 
He ordered him lashed with whips to make him confess his crime. He's still completely confused as to what is going on here. And so they tie him up to this post, okay? So he's lashed up here. He wanted to find out why the crowd had become so furious, right? So when they tied Paul down to lash him, Paul said to the officer standing there, Hey, is it illegal for you to whip a Roman citizen who hasn't even been tried? When the officer heard this, he starts freaking out. He went to the commander and he's like, What are you doing? He's a Roman citizen. <laughs> you can't whip a Roman citizen. So the commander went over and he asked Paul, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? <laughs> and Paul's like, Well, yes, I certainly am. <laughs> And he's like, I am too, and it, it cost me plenty. And Paul's like, yeah, I'm a citizen by birth. And the soldiers who are about to interrogate Paul, interrogate, <laughs> with the cat of nine tails, they quickly withdrew when they heard he was a Roman citizen, and the commander was frightened because he ordered him bound and whipped. Paul was never flogged as far as we know. He was beaten with rods, he was whipped, but he gets out of maybe the only flogging he was about to get. It's probably good too, it might have killed him. Well, the temple courtyard clears out and it says the next day the commander ordered the leading priests into session with the Jewish high council. They wanted to find out what the trouble was all about. So he released Paul to have him stand before them. So he's still trying to figure out what did Paul do. And so they call the Sanhedrin. They get the Sanhedrin and the high priest. They either would have met somewhere in the temple itself or Josephus says on the southwest corner hillside. So that would be kind of the top left of the screen. But they're still in the same area. So they march him over there. And then gazing intently. So Paul's standing before the Sanhedrin. It would sit in a semicircle. Seventy most powerful men in Israel sitting in a semicircle with Paul in the middle. He'd been on the other side of this before, though, as a Sanhedrin member. Now he's being interrogated. Paul said, Brothers, I've always lived before God with a clear conscience. Probably, it's probably with regard to the law or something like that, like he hasn't broken any laws. He obviously had sinned, he knew that. Well, Ananias, the high priest, didn't like that. He commanded those close to Paul to slap him on the mouth. Poosh! Totally consistent with the of Ananias. Well, Paul's like, God will slap you, you corrupt hypocrite. <laughs> you whitewashed tomb is what he literally says. You know, Jesus, I guess he called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs as well. I'm kind of judge you to break the law yourself by ordering me struck like that. Those standing near Paul said to him, you dare to insult God's high priest? Oh, I'm sorry, brothers. I didn't realize he was the high priest. <laughs> For the scriptures say, you must not speak evil of any of your rulers. I don't know if Paul's had bad eyesight or kind of an emergency meeting with St. Hedger, maybe the high priest didn't have his official, he had like a special like garment, you know, robe thing he would wear that set him apart, but Paul kind of apologizes. 
And so Paul is just realizing this, this trial is not going well. I said one thing and I got hit in the face. <laughs> and so he comes up with another plan. He says, it says, Paul realized then that some members of the high council were Sadducees and some were Pharisees. You know, and the Sadducees and Pharisees, they're kind of like Democrats and Republicans, where they could come together to take down a common opponent, but it was a fragile unity. And so he shouted, brothers, my, my Pharisee brothers, I am a Pharisee. My ancestors were Pharisees. And I'm on trial, really. It's because my hope is in the resurrection of the dead. That's really what this is about. Well, this divided the council, the Pharisees against the Sadducees. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection or angels or spirits. That's why they're sad, you see. <laughs> you guys have heard that before, right? But the Pharisees believe in all of these. So there was a great uproar. Some of the teachers of religious law who were Pharisees, they, they jumped up and they began to argue forcefully. Oh yeah, we see nothing wrong with him, they shouted. I mean, perhaps a spirit or an angel spoke to him. Well, the conflict grew more violent and the commander was afraid they were going to tear Paul apart. So he orders his soldiers to go back in and rescue him by force and take him back to the fortress still with no idea of what Paul has done. <laughs> and so you've got to wonder how Paul's feeling at this point. Now, up until this, this period, you know, he'd had success after success after success. Churches planted, disciples being made. And here he comes into Jerusalem, which many godly people had tried to talk him out of. And it's like he hits a brick wall. His life is in danger. He doesn't know how this is going to end up. He's got to be wondering, have I met my end here? Is God done with me? Is there no more for Paul? Have I messed things up? I wonder if he was doubting himself. I don't know. But what's cool is it says that very night the Lord appeared to Paul and said, be encouraged, Paul. Just as you've been a witness to me here in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome as well. That's one of the cool things about the Lord is he, he knows when we're reaching a point of breaking, a point of exhaustion, and he comes in with just the right word of encouragement. He's sovereign over our circumstances. He doesn't allow anything into our lives that's more than we can handle. And that's where we'll draw the line here for this week. I just want to try to summarize a few things we've seen from Paul in Jerusalem. First of all, this is clear. Paul got to meet the righteous one and his life was never the same. So intent on pursuing his own righteousness. Wearing himself out, trampling other people in the process. And then, he was chosen to see, to meet the righteous one. That's something that God offers to you. You can do that tonight. You can meet the righteous one. You can see what real righteousness actually is. You can see what a dim shadow your life has been according to his glorious standard. And you can also have his comforting arm as he, as he wraps his arms around you and says, it's okay. I've paid it all so, so you don't have to. I love you. And receive the peace and encouragement from him.
We've seen that nothing makes religious people angrier than grace. Legalism is such a danger. Coming back under the law, you see the tractor beam pulling the Jerusalem church back in. They never seem to break out of this. Religious people were so angry when they heard about grace and also the thought that God might be doing something outside their own race. Racism and religion are often tightly intertwined with one another. That's what you see here. And God says, my grace is available to anyone. No matter who they are, no matter where they're from, no matter what ethnicity they are, all it takes is coming to me with the empty hands of faith and receiving. And God will call us to suffer like he called Paul. But he'll watch over us and he'll encourage us when we need it. Yes, Lord, thanks you didn't leave us on our own to try to be righteous enough, try to be good enough. Thanks you sent your son, the righteous one, who lived that perfect life, the perfect life of love, perfect obedience to every one of your commands, perfect relationship with you, perfect dependence on you, God. Thank you you sent him to die for our sins and then to extend your, your love, your forgiveness to us. God, I pray too for those of us who are suffering. I pray that we would be encouraged by you, knowing that you're there with us, that you won't let anything into our lives that's more than we can handle, and that you will pull us through in the end. I thank you too just for this, this example of courage, God. I thank you that your truth is ultimately what reigns, and that you promise to speak through us. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.